we talk or riff on kind of a couple of ideas for a while, and then we cut in an expert interview towards the end, somebody that's practically working in that space or does that thing or, you know, whatever whatever it may be. Um, so y'all... He's talking about us right now. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have a lot of fun along the way. I'm Chris Boyer, and I am always joined by my co-host and good friend, Reed Smith. Reed is a digital marketing specialist expert. He is enthusiastic on social media. You can find him on all of the social media sites that all the cool people are on, and even some of those that the not-so-cool people are on. Um, But you want to really follow him on LinkedIn. He's got a really good LinkedIn profile and shares a lot of great information. His Twitter account is very active, and you can find him online at his website website, socialhealthinstitute.com. Reed, welcome to the podcast. Hey, man. How's it going? Good. You are back uh, from said honeymoon and wedding festivities. And yes. uh, as you know, that is Chris Boyer that you're hearing over there on the other side of the microphone. You can find him at ChristopherBoyer.com and Chris Boyer on all the popular social media channels. Uh, be sure to follow him on Twitter, LinkedIn, even Snapchat and all those kinds of fun things and uh, see what he has to say about hospitals and digital marketing. This episode of Touchpoint is brought to you by one of our sponsors, Transparently. Transparently is the nation's fastest growing platform for gathering and publishing physician star ratings and reviews. You can visit transparently.com to learn why the country's most innovative health systems are choosing them to power a better digital patient experience. Again, to learn more, visit them online at transparently.com. How's it going? Good. Back from the honeymoon, back from everything. Uh, and, you know, for those of you who are listening in, just so you know, Reed was one of the groomsmen in my honeymoon. And so he flew out to Minnesota. Not at your lovely- honeymoon. No, oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was a, gro- I was a groomsman <laughs> in the wedding. I did, not, yes. I did not go on the honeymoon. <laughs> That's right. But uh, but anyway, you flew you flew all the way out here to Minnesota, lovely Minnesota in the fall. Yep. What'd you think, yep. Reed? Uh, it, you know, I got to make my annual pilgrimage to Rochester. So uh, this for a little a little bit of a different uh, reason this time than typically. Chris and I, of course, met at the Mayo Clinic or met in person, I guess, for the first time at the Mayo Clinic. Oh, the annual kind of social media conference that we have up there. And so uh, this year, I guess we should probably should mention this anyway. Uh, we'll have a link to this. But this year, we're actually having that annual conference at the Mayo campus over in Arizona. So it will not be in Minnesota this year. So I still got to uh, get my Rochester uh, trip in. Well, it was great having you up here. Uh, the weather was perfect. I appreciated you coming up and participating, Reed. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So today we are talking about the evolution of digital communications education. You know, when we when we started doing this, you know, it was kind of whatever you could find is where you got your information. So from other people that you knew and 
you know, maybe a few blogs or resources online, but we're starting to see a more formalized, uh, I guess, education pattern take place, whether it be through different institutions, organizations, and even higher education uh, is taking note and having some specific offerings. You know, and digital application in education, the use of digital within education settings has kind of dramatically flipped the way education is being delivered for, you know, newer generations now. I, I remember when I was back in college, you know, and I started uh, started classes, they, they had a Usenet group that you would go to. But now digital is like sort of an, an innocuous part of our lives. And we're using it everywhere we go. So we're going to talk a little bit about how education is in healthcare, uh, how digital is impacting that the delivery of that education. And we have a really great interview that you did. Absolutely. So the, uh, know a couple of people and have some friends over at the Center for Health Communications, which is at the University of Texas here in Austin. And so we'll talk more about that. But that's a good example of something that did not exist several years ago now exists because of the need to uh, further our education around digital communications. Well, let's let's take a step back, though, and kind of, you know, situate ourselves around education in healthcare and the different types of cl- or categories, classes of education that there are in healthcare. Uh, and that will help us to maybe kind of expand on the topic then. Yeah. And so the first one, I think, you know, this is something that's existed well for quite some time. Uh, the delivery methods may have changed, but more specifically, the topics, which now include some of these digital topics, are now finding their way into what you know I typically see as uh, you know some sort of credit-based uh, learning. So for physicians, it's continuing medical education. So CMEs, maybe on the nursing side, CNEs. From uh, an administration or uh, you know business operations side of the equation, the American College of Healthcare Executives or ACHE obviously has credit-based learning, uh, where a certain amount of that is required over a period of time to stay board certified in health administration. And so, you know, those types of things where you're taking classes to learn about different subjects and you're receiving credits to maintain a license or, uh, you know, those types of things. So we're starting to see social media, you know, was was kind of a buzzword there for a while. Mm -hmm. And we saw a lot of education around that. And now more specifically, and it kind of bleeds maybe into patient experience, but you know, these digital communication topics find their way into those those avenues. Let's not forget those people that are just entering into the healthcare space, which are, you know, the, those that are attending through residencies, through fellowships, through mm-hmm. internships. They're getting formal education, more maybe even a blended, uh, you know, blended type of education. And they're spending a lot of time uh, bringing in tools like social media and right. text messaging and things like that. Yeah, and that's probably a good place of where, uh, you know, the Center for Health Communications at UT and so that's even undergraduate and graduate-based education. So these are folks that don't have jobs. You know, they're, this is, they're picking this as a career, and this is part of their you know, undergrad or graduate uh, education. Uh, the Social Health Institute, where I, where I spend a lot of my time, we've done some, some education and training with Clemson University. And that, that kind of is a blend there as well, where you have people that have moved into management that do not have a communications or marketing background. So it's a way for them to pick up you know, and, and understand reputation management, a lot of the things that we talk about here on the podcast, but understand that uh, over a few days, you know, get a certificate for Clemson, be able to take that back and put that into practice wherever they work. 
Now, we would be remiss when we're talking about education and healthcare to not address those that are more patient-focused. So we're, we're uh, you know, organizations that spend time studying the best way to deliver patient education information or community health initiatives. And even in some cases, this is where a lot of our listeners that are in the marketing space, they spend, spend a lot of time here is what's the best way to communicate and educate, you know, the patient-based population uh, and, you know, digital tools and channels are coming into play there as well. There's a lot of opportunities and I think, like you mentioned, the tools that now exist in this space, you know, really help us amplify that and, and, and roll it out for that matter. You know, and even I would say there's other associations and things like that exist that, that you know, are going to be training, you know, maybe primarily on the legislative front, but about other other opportunities as well. So you've got things like state hospital associations, uh, even the AHA or the American Hospital Association and some other mm-hmm. state level um, I know here in Texas, for example, there's Torch, which is the Texas Organization for Community and Rural Hospitals, and there's a Children's Hospital Association, and there, you know, there's there's the Texas Medical Association that's on the physician side of the equation. So, lots of those organizations provide training and education uh, to their members, mm-hmm. and and we you know see these you know topically making their way in there as well. Let's face it, there's a lot of education going on in our space. We spend a lot of time focusing on how we can better improve our skills. And, you know, and and because of that, and that what we talked about initially about how the delivery of education is changing with digital tools, there's a great nexus here of change that's happening. And to that end, a lot of organizations are now stepping up to try to improve the way they're delivering their 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 training, so to speak. You know, we again mentioned a lot of stuff. So how is it actually being delivered or administered? Mm-hmm. Probably the most, uh, I guess, the oldest way is is face to face, I guess, or classroom based. Mm-hmm. So you know, people are showing up to a physical location, sitting in a room for a given period of time, and having somebody tell them about stuff. Um, and so that that still is a way. You know, so we mentioned ACHE earlier. You know, they have different offerings, um, you know, both local, regional, and even national, where people go to, you know, Chicago, for example, where they're based, and you get credit for that. And so there's also experiential type of, you know, where they where they immerse people into the care setting. You know, you hear about this typically in like Grand Rounds, or maybe even theaters where you can actually watch live surgical operations occur, those sorts of things. There's a lot of experiential, and, and related to that are the simulations, Right where they right. they actually do uh, simulations. Uh, I've seen some where they have nursing trauma simulations, how to react, where they actually bring people together to act out a particular scenario to try to you know learn from that simulation. Right, and we both I think toured the simulation lab at Mayo Clinic, which is really interesting, uh, where they obviously do that you know, in kind of that residency slash fellowship, you know, training curriculum. So that's, that's cool. I've done some stuff with uh, Da Vinci and uh, mm-hmm. played with uh, their little uh, surgical tools and stuff like that. It's like playing a video game. It's a really, really expensive way to play operation, the board, the board game. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot of fun and it's uh, proof you do not want me doing your, um, uh, Da Vinci surgery. But anyway, there's all those types of things because I think, you know, a lot of this stuff is based off of uh, um, uh, repetition and things like that at times. 
Um, so we're starting to see some of that. And then obviously, you know, besides the in-person staff, we're starting to see and have seen for quite some time, obviously, especially in the traditional university setting even, um, or masters especially, but as the kind of online or self-taught, self-paced. And so things like, you know, even video streaming sites, YouTube, Vimeo, et cetera, have, have aided in this. But there's obviously lots of platforms out there that, uh, you know, are online learning management systems and you know, those types of things that allow us to deliver content and uh, expertise to folks that, you know, maybe it's a geographical constraint or something like that. There's people that can't come and sit down in the classroom. We, we start to see a lot of those face-to-face type settings being transformed into these online uh, self-paced classes, but also we know of vendors that are out there that are actually creating huge, robust platforms of, let's say, video content or uh, even you know, virtual reality type of content where you can actually see particular types of medical procedures, complex treatments of of things, you know, even expanding out into the going into the body cavities to see in 3D simulation right. what that might look like. So that's that's really exciting stuff that's happening. Yeah. And, you know, again, to mention the Mayo Clinic one more time, you know, something that you and I have been involved with, the uh, social media network has online modules that were built alongside Hootsuite to help with some of that 101 uh, education, uh, you know, around Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, you know, et cetera. So you're able to go through uh, at your pace, uh, learn and make sure you understand the basics uh, before you come to some of the in-person training. So sometimes it's even used as just level setting. And so that's a good example of that. There's obviously, uh, you know, other things out there that, that are very similar. And then, of course, let's not forget, you know, all of the different conferences, Read that people go to peer-to-peer oh, yeah. Yeah. where you learn yeah. from each other, you learn to see use case studies, you learn best practices, that sort of thing. There's a lot of great ways that training is being delivered in this space. Yeah, and even in a lot of cases, it's all of the above, right? So you've yeah. got the in-person conference, which also is then offered online after. After the fact, and the whole thing includes, you know, continuing education credits, you know, or whatever it may be. So people are coupling a lot of this stuff together, try to meet as many people's needs as they can with one delivery. Suffice to say, a lot of ways that training is being delivered, a lot of blended opportunities for training. We really want to kind of dive a little bit deeper into effective ways to do health communication education. And um, there's a resource that that was actually mentioned in the interview that you uh, you you conducted that we'll hear a little bit later. The NCI Pink Book where I uh, took a look at, it's a free resource that was put out by NCI that actually shares a lot of great information about effective healthcare communication. So I thought we might use that as a way to kind of drill through some of the ways that communication can assist in, in, in our space. They categorize, and we're just going to touch, this is a really lengthy book, a PDF. It's like 80 pages long. Definitely worth downloading and reading and, and keeping keeping bookmarked. What we want to do is we want to talk about how effective health communication education can assist in the healthcare setting. So they say communication alone can do a couple of things. One of the first most important things is, is it can increase the intended audience's knowledge and awareness of a health issue, problem, or a solution. So clearly, right, it helps to educate on that solution. Yeah, absolutely. And it also, um, uh, you know, it influences the perceptions, beliefs, attitudes, 
uh, you know, has the chance, I guess, to impact or maybe even change uh, social norms. And that, you know, like vaccinations, that sort of thing. Right. Um, but it can also prompt action, get people to actually do something, particularly in health crisis. When we discover a particular health crisis and a way to react to it, good, effective health communication can do that. And then even uh, demonstrate, maybe illustrate healthy skills. And so, again, we've seen this, uh, you know, with uh, smoking cessation, maybe it's uh, handling CPR education, et cetera. Also increased demand or support for uh, for health services. So particularly, you know, and it helps us to identify where there may be areas of opportunity. And we think about, I think a lot when I hear this is around where they have food deserts in particular communities. Well, mm. education around that can actually help to drive demand or support for creating these food oases in the middle of urban locations that may not have access to fresh foods. Uh, Also could show the benefit of behavior change. So, you know, be able to communicate the uh, the outcome if you do these things or increase demand and support for health services you know maybe advocating for a new type of treatment or a new type of procedure it can in- increase the demand or support for that and then uh, you know refute myths or misconceptions you know that's a uh, obviously you mentioned vaccines earlier that's <laughs> that's yeah. probably a great example of that yeah, absolutely. And and I mentioned before in a previous podcast here in Minnesota, we have a big Somalian population in Minneapolis, and they don't traditionally approach vaccinations the same way. So we had a very strong approach around health communication education to drive a change of that in that in within that community and it was very effective lastly i think what it does it actually strengthens relationships between organizations so maybe strengthening the relationship between a hospital provider and potentially you know some kind of a community health program one of these that comes springs to mind is in when I was in uh, at Anova Health System, we developed a partnership between the local farmers markets and uh, the hospital where we actually helped to co-fund credits that people that are on food stamps can use at farmers markets to get fresh produce. So that's a good strengthening wow. of that relationship. Yeah. Very cool. Well, yeah. so that is, you know, that's just communications and communications yep. alone. Now, if you combine that with an actual strategy, what do you get? You know, it's kind of the next the next layer, right? So the, the, you have the chance to have, you know, a sustained change. Again, if you have the strategy, then you, you're able to drive, you know, that all the way through uh, where hopefully people can, you know, see the outcome and, you know, those types of things and actually have them have a sustained change in, in whatever it is that you're trying to impact. And not only influence like sort of that behavior within the community itself, it can actually help to overcome those internal barriers or problems that's preventing people from getting access to care. So we see a lot of community health and even population health initiatives that are looking mm-hmm. at a two-pronged front, one towards focusing on improving effective care in the organization, and the second about improving the optimized delivery of that care within that institute. And that that's very important. And finally, I, you know, maybe this is um, could be maybe the most important, but what communications cannot actually do. One of those things where it's like, you know, there's always that saying of like the worst thing you can do is market a bad product or a bad experience. Right. So you cannot, you know, compensate for having, you know, inadequate health care or, or even just the access to certain health care services. Right. So it doesn't matter how good your communications are. Communication is 
has limitations in that it cannot produce sustained change in a complex health behavior without these other programs, without another initiatives coming along. So I guess I guess this is a fancy way of saying you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You have to be able to provide the right types of not only education, but delivery mechanisms to change that type of care. And that could be the services, the technology, regulations, it can, you know, policy, you need all of the, it's a complex system. You can't just, education can't do it alone. And, you know, finally, I think, you know, what communication cannot do, uh, you know, we're not going to have, you know, equally the most effective, I guess, input on all the intended audiences, all the intended messaging, you know, and things like that. So you may have some issues, again, going back to vaccinations that are controversial. They shouldn't be, maybe, but they are for various reasons. And so the idea that communications is, you know, kind of the silver bullet is uh, probably uh, not, not a great place to start. No, not at all. But, but the point is here, though, communication is an integral part of a complex system in order to affect positive health change. And subsequently, right. this pink book goes into very complex uh, approach towards how do you build a framework to building your communications program? Mm -hmm. What are some best practices, some of the different disciplines, how to structure a program? It's it's a very handy resource. And so we're not going to go into depth on this, but we'll definitely link to it in our show notes. Yes, absolutely. And also, just to correct you, it is 262 pages. Oh, my goodness. Everything you want to know. Now, that includes the glossary and the appendix and things like that, but still. And even, you know, as a digital marketer, I I took a lot away after kind of reviewing this document because I think that we in marketing, we traditionally don't think about ourselves as educators. Well, we don't. You know, we, we buy media and create pretty ads and things like that. Yeah, that's that's typically how we're seen or have been seen uh, to this point. But the way marketing is changing, and we've talked about this in so many different episodes, it's like we're becoming more and more part of the education system, whether it's through content marketing, whether it's through creating effective information delivered to the right people at the right time, uh, when we look at understanding more of the patient journey and being able to supply the right information to them throughout that journey, what we're effectively doing is we're becoming de facto educators of our populations. I think that it's important for us to kind of underscore that. And as we advance our our knowledge around the different digital topics, the different digital things that are out there, I think that we also have to understand that what we're doing is we're basically impacting different segments of our industry, of our organization that we haven't traditionally spent time with before. All right, so that's all all interesting points and good stuff relative to you know what communications is and isn't and kind of kind of the impact of it. I think you know specifically to our audience is looking at you know what does that mean in the in truly in the digital space. Um, so not necessarily the face to face education and some of those types of things. And so you know we found this this interesting article, Medical Education's Digital Revolution, uh, where it walks through a few different elements here uh, relative to. You know what is that? What does digital mean uh, relative to education now? You know how has that changed the way we do education and, and some of those types of things? And so, you know, its first point uh, is actually you know educators are flipping the classroom and changing how they teach. 
You know what's interesting about this? It, it, there's a they sat, quoted a, a stat here that says medical school class attendance is dropping as much as seventy to eighty percent in some classes. You know, when when I hear that from the outside, I'm thinking. What? You mean our future doctors and nurses and specialists are not attending class? 70 yeah, they're not going to class. Yeah, they just don't go to class anymore. <laughs> but that's not exactly what, what, what they're saying is. I mean, I think what the point is, is uh, a lot of educators are now assuming that students are going to absorb sort of the basic information on their own, you know, at their own convenience. They use, you know, the internet, smartphones, tablets, whatever that's online. And they're really coming to the school place to kind of work out problems that they've encountered or do applications of what they have learned. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I, I think that's an interesting assumption that, you know, that they're just going to get the basics on their own. I mean, obviously, there's still checks and balances here. There's still testing and those types of things. So they have to get it somewhere. Right. But, you know, I think like it talks about here, there are some mixed results and there's a few links to that. Again, we'll have links to this in the show notes, the article itself. You know, I, I don't know. This is one of those things that, that I'm worried about here in a few years. You know, what do we, what are, I don't know that we can know the outcome until some time has rolled by. That is true. Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, from my perspective, I know as, as a professional adult that I do a lot of learning online, self-paced learning, and I go out and research things. But the application of those learnings are actually where I learn the most, I have to say. Um, and, and, you know, and you have to adapt for real life situ- scenarios and situations. Mm-hmm. I, for, in my perspective, as I envision this, to think about residents and fellowships that are occurring right now, where 70 80% of that is online, maybe they're having face-to-face interactions with physicians, maybe they're having like counseling sessions and mentoring sessions but but you know quite frankly I think there is still a lot of value to have being in person and meeting with your fellow you know your fellow students learning from them even if you're sitting together you know studying a, a class or watching a, a simulated surgery or something like that yeah I, I don't know it's one of those things where like you know we've all read the stats where it's like um, you know it seems like I saw something relative to you know people that take handwritten notes in a lecture are more likely to retain and understand that information than people that are typing notes into a computer or something like that. So I think there's different ways that until this happens for a while, it's going to be hard to understand, you know, really the outcome of that. And two, I think people learn differently. So for some, it's probably fine. For others, it's not. But that's that's the hard time about, you know, that some of this structured education is, you know, it ends up being kind of a one size fits all in in a lot of cases. Now, I'm going to do a little aside here, Reed. You know, one of the things that I do when I'm at conferences and I want to take notes on a particular presentation or something is I tweet it out. So I'm kind of using Twitter as my virtual notes, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the kinesthetic yeah. note-taking kind of session. And I think I, I, in my mind, I'm kind of inflating that to say maybe that's beneficial to people that are following along. But I really think it's more for me because as I type it out, I think about it. Well, it's it's an easier way for, you know, even you know to your point, it's an easier way for me to remember links or be able to find, you know, resources that somebody mentioned that I want to go back and look at it, you know, later. Mm-hmm. Again, maybe it's good for people that follow me, but it, it is an easy way for me to remember, <laughs> you know. Where, did it, where was that or what, what was that guy talking about or whatever? I can kind of go back and look. 
I think, too, when and we've talked about this before, too, is that when we are presenting and everybody's sitting there tweeting, are they really hearing everything that we say? Are they, you know, are they paying attention? And I think this gets into a part of the, the article focuses on some of the downsides of digital. One of the first points right. they say is that people that are critical of podcasts. So let's stop there Uh-oh. for a second. Easy. You know, easy now. Yeah. <laughs> but people that say they're critical of podcasts in medicine say that students typically listen to podcasts while doing something else like driving or mm-hmm. you know at the mm-hmm. gym or whatever so they're not paying 100% attention to it what they mention here is it also um you know that yes you can rewind a podcast to some degree i guess um you, they can't ask questions on the spot, give feedback, ask for clarification, you know, some of those types of things that you could in a you know traditional lecture format. And, and I agree with that. I mean, there's nothing. But I think I think, you know, like podcasts, for example, I think are great supplemental, you know, because it is a great thing to do while you're in the car or traveling or whatever it may be. And so usually the podcast I'm listening to. You know, even the business-related ones like ours or, or some of the others, mm-hmm. I don't want. I'm not looking to ask questions. I'm just absorbing. May go back and check out some stuff later, but it's really about being exposed to stuff that I don't, you know, currently know. But I'm not listening to it in the sense that it's you know formal education either. I, and I might even say, you know, that when you're on the internet, that sometimes your attention span can waver as well. You know, like you, maybe you're researching some videos on YouTube that are focused on this particular education program that you're learning, but you might then get a related video that's about cats doing something, and then all of a sudden you're in it. You know, that happens a lot. Um, and yeah. so, is the internet conducive to very focused? training or is it all supplemental to kind of you know just kind of go along with with all the other things that we're doing in our lives i don't know we'd like to take a minute to thank one of our sponsors our good friends over at binary fountain as you know they are the experts in reputation management and they will be at the healthcare internet conference here at the end of october so be sure to stop by their booth they're at booth number 40 and learn a little bit more about their binary health analytics solutions and how that will help you in your day-to-day life as you're monitoring your reputation online. So if you've got questions, want to check out a demo, whatever it may be, stop by Booth 40 at HCIC. And as a bonus, you may be able to win a pair of Apple AirPods by just stopping by. Tell them we said hi. I mean, they mentioned screens, e-readers, you know, et cetera, that, you know, they lack some of the tactile features of paper. Like I mentioned earlier, where we're seeing, you know, people apparently have a better, better chance of recalling things if they're handwriting it. I'm not sure if that's the case for me necessarily, but you know, that that's what some of the studies show. It does probably allow for, you know, indexing and your ability to look things back up a little bit quicker. But again, you're losing some of that tactile pieces. And I, I don't know, maybe people, especially people that like record lectures and stuff like that, and then go back and listen to it. I, you're a little disconnected, you know, when it's happening, because you're recording it. And probably when you're listening to it back, because like the point before, you're also doing something else. I'm not sure about that. The whole tactile piece of that for me, even typing it on a keyboard is enough for me. I think it's just, you know, recopying the notes. But I think that the biggest risk of going digital or embracing digital in the classroom setting can be around that one-to-one mentoring or 
camaraderie that we talked about that you have with your classmates, you know, working together with other people to solve a problem or learning from experts. I've seen a lot of these digital, there's, there's digital training programs out there where you can connect with an expert that's across the country or even across the world, right? Mm-hmm. And you can talk to them through your computer screen. Uh, and, and, you know, while, while I learn a lot from talking to you, Reed, I find that when we're in person together, it actually, that's a better experience. It's more enriching. So the camaraderie piece or mentorship piece even is, uh, I think really important. You know, there's a reason people have lifelong friendships from college, right? Mm-hmm. Or high school, you spend a lot of time with these people and it allows you to then, and maybe in that case, it's more from a personal setting, you know, mm-hmm. to call them for advice, uh, to be in somebody's wedding, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You're part of these people's lives. I think, you know, digital gives you a certain buffer where you're not going to get that same level of uh, interaction and more importantly, kind of the down the road advice and, you know, being able to be a sounding board and some of those types of things. And so because you're, you're not you're not seeing them face to face, you're not seeing them on a regular basis. There are some upsides, though, to digital. I mean, clearly, you suddenly have access to the entire world, right, of information, uh, given mm-hmm. that it's out there. You can you can connect with people that are just in vast geographic distances. You know, there's a lot of good opportunities to use digital to to supplement your, your, your traditional yeah. training and education. Especially once you're already into your career. You know, you've got family, kids, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't just up and go to, you know, Harvard Business School. Well, you can now. Because it's online and it's certificate bay, you know, some of that type, you know, additional learnings, you can do that. And so, yeah, there's obviously, you know, lots and lots of positives. And I think for your individual situation, you just got to determine, you know, what, you know, does that outweigh the negative uh, or maybe not even negative, but just the downside of it. You know, what, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to get out of it? I wonder what the future of education is going to look like with all these digital tools and now with augmented reality and virtual reality. I, I really wonder what the future state will be. Any thoughts? I mean, you have kids in school, Reed. What do they, what do you think? I mean, it's funny, my fifth grader, all his teachers, which in fifth grade, he has nine periods to go to, which is kind of crazy. In fifth grade, I had one teacher. But anyway, they all have a Google Classroom. He's logging on to do his homework. He's logging on uh, logging into uh, a particular classroom of one of his teachers and pulling down Google Slides of a presentation, <laughs> which Jeez. I'm like, okay, you know, I mean, this this is so foreign to what I did in fifth grade, kind of a thing. So right. that makes me think. Like, I didn't even do that when I was a senior in high school because the internet didn't exist, pretty much. What does that mean when he's a senior in high school mm-hmm. or even going to college for that matter? I mean, is there even such a thing as college? You probably will have college, obviously, because I think college athletics have become too big of a business. And that's a whole nother topic I don't want to get into. Like, colleges aren't just going to disappear. Right. You know, over the next, what is he, he's 10, over the next eight years. I mean, they're not, colleges aren't going to disappear. But I think the idea of learning 
uh, and how that's done is is changing pretty rapidly in the delivery mechanisms of it. So gone are the days that like this really famous guy at this one university that teaches this one particular subject and you can't get into his class. Remember how they would, like close classes? Yep. You yep. Know, kind of a deal. Like I think some of that you'll start seeing go away if it hasn't already. I think it's fascinating. And the way digital is impacting the way education is being delivered, it really speaks to the fact that digital is clearly infused into our lives. And so we're starting to see more and more the programs themselves, those specific programs, are, are getting how to be adept and using digital. And your interview goes into that a lot with the, with the people at the University of Texas. Yeah, it does. I think it's. I think it'll be a good, uh, a good resource for folks and a lot of good links. Um, let's talk quickly about yeah. some of the uh, digital tools and resources that are out there before we jump into that interview. Sure. You know, I think we've mentioned a lot of them, like video sharing sites, so YouTube, Vimeo. You know, we see uh, iTunes. There's iTunes University or iTunes U or whatever you want to call it that uh, a lot of universities are using. I think Stanford was the first one because mm-hmm. uh, they are right up there. Mm-hmm buy them and so they can subscribe uh you know now you can subscribe to you know a lot of courses from major universities now i mean you're not going to get credit necessarily you know you're not getting a degree from stanford but you are you know being able to participate and suck down a lot of great information from uh, a lot of great places what about MOOCs? have you ever done a MOOC before yeah you know our good friend and former expert on the podcast brian vardabedian down at uh, texas children's in houston does a MOOC with uh, rice university mm-hmm. and so that's uh, that is an interesting one and i think we'll see more and more of that grow you know subject matter expertise people like him and like others and in in what doesn't have to be clinical necessarily but you'll see more and more people create classes uh, because they have something to offer versus writing a book so MOOCs, by the way stands for a massive open online course and there's really big platforms like Coursera. I've done a lot of classes where you can get some free online yep. education through Coursera. edX is another one. I, I think Khan Academy is starting to be considered a MOOC as yep. well. Is that right? Yeah, and my you know, my kids do some of the Khan Academy stuff that's pretty interesting, and some of the Code.org uh, mm-hmm. stuff, which is which is kind of neat. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah, I think uh, Brian, I think he used uh, Coursera. Yeah. Uh, I believe is what they used for that. And I talked to a few people <laughs> that took his course and they're like, man, that was hard. <laughs> so, I mean, this isn't just, that's something that's kind of interesting. This isn't just some random layup, no. you know, where you just, you watch a video, you know, answer a couple of questions and get a certificate. I mean, people are actually doing real work, you know, yeah. on these, on these sites, which is kind of interesting. I mean, obviously some are more in depth mm-hmm. than others. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. As organizations are looking to pull together, you know, uh, education programs that sort of start to embrace digital and embrace digital topics and techniques, what maybe we should do is, you know, just kind of on a high level, talk about like sort of the tools in their toolkit that they should have to consider, or maybe even mm-hmm. start to take inventory of. So, I mean, obviously, like most everything else, your website or, uh, you know, maybe a learning management system, depending on, you know. Uh, the structure of how you're wanting to deliver content. Mm-hmm. Uh, learning management systems are obviously a little more in depth and provide a lot of features uh, that a traditional classroom would have, like 
you know, ways to, you know, collaborate with others and, and things like that. But that would be the, that would be the hub of it all, I would say. You know, I recently worked with a hospital system on choosing a learning management system for them. There are quite a number of good LMSs that are out there, you know, programs that can bring in video content, multimedia content, uh, mm-hmm. can have structured learning where you have to do this before you do this, kind of, you know, the workflows right. around that. And, you know, I think that, that when you're looking at LMSs today, think of it as much more than just watch a video, answer five questions, go on to the next video. This is now like very structured, formal programs that are, that are coming into play. Yeah, and I would say uh, that there's probably going to be at least a couple of them at the Healthcare Internet Conference later this month. So if you're going to be there, probably a few worth checking out. Absolutely. There's also a lot of online clinical resources that people use just to look up information. Now, this is clinical in in nature, but, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously, if you're non-clinical in nature, you have Google as your biggest online resource. But, but, uh, you know, if you're looking for clinical tools, what are some of those that we've heard of, Reed? Well, there's the uh, definitional content. So you have like Adam, uh, the folks over at uh, Stay Well, for right. example. And a lot of that sometimes is integrated into the website uh, pretty succinctly where you can't tell necessarily that that's where that's coming from. Right. But they're, they're the ones that specifically power quite a bit of the, uh, the learning around you know, definitional content, clinical definitional content. There's also the clinical ones, Reed. Right, like Hippocrates and Up to Date. Mm-hmm. These are the ones mm-hmm. that doctors, nurses use. A lot of times, those are behind the scenes, and those are accessible only from like a physician login. You know, sure. but I think those are very important tools to to utilize as well. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, you know, other third party uh, web resources. We've mentioned quite a few of them: iTunes, U, Khan Academy, you know, etc. So all, all good places. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would, I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else, they've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But, but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems, kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to InfluenceHealth.com. Touchpoint. Touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! Here we are at Touch Point, Touch Counterpoint, and uh, today's topic being that we're talking about uh, education, specifically digital communications education is um, you know is that in-person learning that the 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 in the classroom face to face with a teacher standing up at the front of the room uh, maybe not exactly that but but basically that is the in-person education becoming something of the past um, I would say yes yeah it, it absolutely is becoming something of the past what are you talking about 
How could you say that in-person education is going away, Reed? I don't understand. You need that touch, that face-to-face interaction with a mentor. We, you know, we, we, you need to have that connection. There's things that you can't get from a computer screen. You need to have that sort of face-to-face interactions. Yeah, I think though, but with the with the generations that are coming up and the in the folks that are doing it now, so you know, taking the the continuing ed out of the equation, so continuing education, um, sometimes you're restricted and you can only do it online because you have a job, you can't leave and just go to every training education that exists. But I think you know, especially those that are coming up, this is the way they want to learn and expect to learn, and uh, I mean, you know, the folks writing the checks. You know, i.e. the people uh, that are attending these colleges and stuff are going to dictate how they want to learn and how they actually receive education. Look, I get that there may be an economical advantage of doing virtual-based training, but I think that you're you're missing out on some of the most critical aspects of learning, the nuances of that face-to-face interaction. How could you say that, let's say, the future surgeon that's going to be working on your body doesn't have doesn't want to be there with another surgeon while perhaps they're doing face-to-face surgery in the surgical suite together. How could you say that you don't want people that you know have that that real life interaction and just learn it off the computer screen? I, I think that that's kind of scary. But I think it allows us to get education to more people more efficiently and and actually have a more robust probably conversation because now it's not just one teacher and one teacher slant on. Uh, you know, a particular topic or issue or subject, because uh, they are, they're going to teach it their way, even though, you know, they're going to have a little bit of leaning in there somewhere. Now you get different points of view. You get, uh, you get all kinds of stuff that probably make the educational experience a little more uh, well-rounded. Wait, are you suggesting that we're going to start crowdsourcing the best way to operate on a heart? Are you kidding me? That's kind of ridiculous. You want to learn from the trusted people that have done this over and over again. That's the reason why you have these closed classes, why you want to go learn from the best. You don't want to open this up to everybody all over the world being able to kind of weigh in and say, actually, I would cut the aortic valve instead of the ventricular valve. Well, of course not. I mean, it's all going to be evidence-based, but you're going to have people that would rather do it uh, robotically. You're going to have people that would rather, you know, manually perform the surgery or, you know, the ablation or whatever it is. There's different ways. There's different surgical procedures, for example, that can be done either or. And so I think you're going to start hearing from, you know, you have the ability to now hear from both versus, you know, whichever one your mentor feels like is the best way to do it. Well, yeah, but you're going to be sitting there and log into a computer screen to do this. Meanwhile, you're going to have your Twitter feed running over here. You might have YouTube running over there. You might even be playing, you know, video games in the background. You're not even going to be paying attention to this. It's going to be, there's so much noise on the internet. It's going to be so hard to get your focused attention on just your computer screen or your phone or your tablet or whatever it is. Yeah, but we can't trot them all into the OR. I mean, we don't have these amphitheaters anymore like we used to where people are sitting up top and watching a surgery happen. They're sitting in a classroom somewhere watching it via video, even if they're within the same facility or same building even. So now we're just allowing to take that feed and push it out across the globe and allow people to participate that couldn't afford to be there, for example. Let me ask you something, Reed. Would you fly in a a commercial airline flight with a pilot that is only learned through virtual learning pilot simulation programs? Would you feel comfortable with that? Yeah, I think that's apples and oranges. (laughs) 
But you do see you do see Formula One drivers playing video games to learn a track that they've never driven on before. Okay, so it's complimentary, but does, it won't replace it. I don't think that face-to-face learning is going to be a thing of the past. You do need to have that face-to-face learning. That's a critical part. That's where the learning occurs. Well, sure, they're not actually going to do the surgery via online. I mean, somebody's going to have to be standing there and help them when they do it the first time. So that's not going to go away. But the educational piece of it on the front end is probably moving and is moving towards you know the digital space. I actually might have to might have to get on your side and say that I envision the future. They may be doing surgeries online. You may be getting surgical procedures done by people across the country, or if not across the world, in the future. Well, I mean that's that's obviously what telehealth is, right? You know, to some degree. And so, I mean, but I will say, even though we may be moving that direction, it does not mean that it is it, just because something happens does not mean it's the best thing. You know, we mentioned the the need to have camaraderie and you know have the face to face piece and the mentorship and building those relationships. I, does that go away? Maybe it does. Should it? No. You know, but mm. uh, you know, we'll see kind of where this all all shakes out. Obviously. Yeah, I can see a future where a lot of that you know that school based learning, the book based learning, that kind of thing that you're doing, you could move that into a digital setting. But I still think. There is a lot of value to be in the in the actual experience, uh, within the hospital, within the surgical suite, within whatever it is. Even when you're in healthcare administration, there's, you're going to learn a lot while on the job. And I think training might have to evolve to a, to adopt to all different modalities throughout this. All right, here we are at the Ask the Expert portion of the podcast. So uh, Chris and I have been talking a lot today about education in in the space of uh, health communications, marketing, all that kind of good stuff. I'm very fortunate to be joined by a couple of folks here in the great state of Texas, in the great town of Austin, on the campus of the University of Texas. And I've got the director of the Center for Health Communications and the associate director of the Center for Health Communications here at UT. Mike and Aaron, thanks for spending a little bit of time with us today. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Tell everybody a little bit about what you guys do on a daily basis, uh, and especially your kind of breakdown between the medical school and the, the university in general. And then also, if they want to track you down online, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so the best way to track down all of us online is uthealthcom.org. My job as director is pretty awesome in that I actually get to have two faculty homes on campus. And so I am faculty in the Stan Richards School of Advertising and Public Relations and also the Dell Medical School Department of Population Health. And so I have kind of a chance to do kind of education and research things in both communication and Dell Med and then across the campus. Yes, and I'm a faculty member in the Department of Communication Studies, so that's my primary academic home. I also have an appointment in the College of Pharmacy because I teach communication over there and then my connection with the med schools through the center. So I'm teaching health communication to undergrads in communication, to graduate students in communication and advertising and PR, and to PharmD students um, in the College of Pharmacy. 
Very cool. That's very interesting. With that said, the Center for Health Communications, and I guess so everybody can kind of get a picture. Obviously, the University of Texas has been around forever, I guess, <laughs> practically. Mm-hmm. Um, Dell Medical School, very, very new. So the doors have been open for the actual hospital medical school for a couple of years. Like it, It's been a couple of years now. Like yeah. From the time we knew... The, the med school is very proud of, and it's a really cool feature, that the people in Austin actually voted to increase their own taxes mm-hmm. as a way of funding the medical school. And so for probably, that was probably four or five years ago, mm-hmm. like we right. knew there was a med school coming. And so for all the people, the faculty and communication who were already doing health communication work, it was like, oh my gosh, there's a med school coming. And we were already working with people in nursing and pharmacy and social work and kind yeah. of all over campus. But we knew there was this... Uh, looming uh, arrival of a giant medical school. Mm-hmm. And it's the first Brilliant. med school at an R1 university in like 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's also, I think, the last. Because I heard someone say that like the other R1 that doesn't have a med school, there's a med school like a block away. So like, we're, we're sort of <laughs> yeah. first chance to do this in a generation and maybe wow. the last chance for a very long time. Yeah. Interesting. And Interesting. Then at the same time, for several years, our dean of the Moody College of Communication had seen how important health communication was to the field of communication, but then also to just the other disciplines that relate to us. And so he had been um, helping the departments in our college invest in hiring people like us, faculty, to bring health communication to UT Austin. And then as part of the gift that we received from the Moody family in our college, we were able to start the center hire the founding director, um, Dr. Jay Bernhardt, who then went on to become our dean. So we just really had all of this timing that kind of struck lightning at the, you know, simultaneously. And you have all these people who care about this on our campus at the same time. So let's talk a little bit about that. So uh, there was health communication being taught prior to the center being in existence, right? And so then what drove the idea of a center for health communications? What what was the motivating factor there? I mean, I think part of it is, you know, my first year or two at UT, and I think a lot of faculty who come doing health come work, you know, I spent a lot of time running around the school of nursing and pharmacy, and like I was going to find people who would want to work with me. Mm. And so part of the interest, I think, on the Moody College of Communication side for a center for health communication was like become a magnet so other people Mm -hmm. would be like, oh my gosh, like there's a whole like there's a bunch of people in communication who care about this. And so to get people from nursing to medicine, like everyone to kind of realize they should be coming to us too. So it was increasing visibility um, and eventually more kind of infrastructure and resources to help make cool things happen. Mm-hmm. What were those initial days like and kind of what does it look like now as far as what types of things are you guys doing? I mean, you're still teaching classes, obviously. Yes. But what what is the center doing? Yes. Well, do you want to talk about the early days first? Yes. The early days, we would say, you know, jokingly, but accurately that we were working two jobs. We had our traditional responsibilities as professors, teaching our classes, doing our research, providing service, advising students. And then we were kind of working at a startup where we were texting and emailing at 11 o'clock at night, which we still do, um, talking (laughs) about, you know, uh, grant proposals and, hey, Uh have you met this person who was just hired um, in the School of Nursing and we should get them together and we should get this project and hey there's a student who's interested in studying health communication yeah and so uh Aaron is being modest because some of the <laughs> like some of the earliest successes we had I think as a center were on the education front and so it was working okay. with the school of pharmacy and the med school to kind of formulate a plan to kind of take our expertise in communication and put it into their classrooms and so Aaron led this effort and this 
multi-year, multi-college, and wow, is there a lot of burnt orange tape to cut through when you're trying to figure <laughs> out how this is going to work? Yeah. yeah. And, and so in a lot of ways, our earliest successes, we do a summer health communication leadership institute that yeah. is kind of three days really aimed at sort of mid-career health communication practitioners. Okay. And so we have folks in from the CDC and state health agencies and yeah. insurance companies to kind of do leadership training and health com best practices. Okay. And so for the first year or two, I think a lot of our success and progress was more mm-hmm. on that front. Yeah. Now we've sort of turned the corner as a startup, basically, and have, you know, four or five staff. We're looking to hire two new people because we have an increasing number of, you know, state contracts and grants and contracts that we need the staff to execute. And those become our ways to kind of put our our research and our education experience into practice kind of in the real world. What's really special about our center and the Moody College and the other units that we work with on campus. So we as communication professors, it's an interesting combination. Healthcom is very practical, right? We teach people things like, here is a way to greet a patient at a pharmacy or in a clinic so that they feel welcome and they feel that you remember them. But we're also very theoretical. So our departments have traditionally been, you know, the scholars that edit the handbooks of communication and sort mm. of set the the bars of of quality for the field in terms of theory. And so it's really valuable that when other disciplines and other units on campus turn to us, because we can say, here's the theoretical reason why this communication skill works and why it matters. Like, here's the research behind it. And I was giving a talk last week and saying, you know, we ask people all the time, you know, what are good communication practices, you know, in healthcare settings? And everybody says eye contact. And they're not wrong. Eye contact is important, but eye contact is five pages of a 200-page book on nonverbal communication, right? So it's it's our ability to sort of push that a little bit further, which can be hard because we're you know challenging people and getting them outside of their comfort zone. But um, it's when they when it clicks and they get it, it's just really meaningful for all of us. What what we found because especially kind of before there was a center and in kind of the early days, it's like ah communication. It's like the squishy thing. Mm -hmm. Like you can do it or you can't. Like you, right. you know, maybe you had a good mentor who teaches you, but otherwise, like, good luck. Right. And we started using kind of the term, like, evidence-based health communication. Like, this is mm-hmm. there is a best way to break bad news to a patient, and we can train people to do that better and more effectively. And so as soon as we started saying evidence-based health com, that was, like, this key that kind of, like, if you work in medicine or public health, or it's like, oh, evidence-based medicine. Like, we, now we understand that there's science behind what you do, right. and that helped people yes. get, like, get what we are about. Yeah, that we are scientists, we're social scientists, and that there are, you know, it's not just the quote-unquote soft science, that there are hard health outcomes that are associated right. with better communication practices. So if you communicate information about risk, or if you talk to a patient, or if you have a campaign that is effective, you're actually going to lower people's blood pressure and their levels of pain that they experience. right. right. I think this is a really interesting blurring of the lines because historically, and most people that listen to this podcast are marketing slash communication professionals, probably at a hospital, other health-related organizations as well, and even some physicians. So the physicians could probably identify very clearly with what you're talking about. How do you enter a room? You know, and you know those expectations, and you know some of those that, that feels. You know, having worked in a hospital myself, you know, that feels clinical to me, right? Mm-hmm. Like we talk, e- even even EVS or, or, I'm sorry, food service, housekeeping, folks like that. It's like anybody that enters a patient room, here's what you do, right? There's an acronym and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Nobody talked to anybody in administration about any of that stuff, right? So we just ran advertising campaigns. 
and set over in an office somewhere else. So people that come to UT and are majoring in communications and marketing and advertising type roles, how does this fit into kind of their world? Like, you know, what what, what do they do with this? Sure. Sure. So we actually just launched a health communication minor, which is our first kind of official within the College of Communication educational offering. And the first... The first cohort that went through kind of the intro class last year, it was all students from College of Natural Sciences who are pre-med. When we think about what we want that minor to become over time, like I really want some art director or copywriter in advertising to take it, and then they will be much, much better and more effective creating the next over-the-counter medication campaign. Right. And I want some journalism major to take it and be the next great you know, health journalist. Mm-hmm. And so I think... In and then other like people and from other colleges taking that minor too, and a chance for kind of all that interdisciplinary stuff that yeah. we personally value mm-hmm. deeply. But I think that's one of the reasons I know we're excited about that minor is it's a way to kind of create specialties for students who are already going through communication yeah. to give them what they really want to dig deep. Mm-hmm. Like we want to give them that foundation, everything from because we were built backwards. Right. We you know we always kind of say we're sort of uh, you know a mile wide and a foot deep. And so we have people who do everything from interpersonal communication to organizational and technology and mass media campaigns right. and in a way that not most centers like ours would not be that broad. Right. Like, I can't have a meeting with anyone on this campus and not be able to be like, oh, you need to meet with this faculty member because that's their research expertise or like this mm-hmm. grad student's the person you need to talk to. Like we're, yeah. we're, yeah. we're like, that can be a problem sometimes, but Like, it's one of our real strengths and things that people value about kind of being a part of our group. Yeah. And one of our other strengths is that for whatever reason, the way it came together, those of us who were helping to build the center are all people who really like to teach. Hmm. And so our education portfolio in HealthCom is very geared toward the student experience and different types of learners. So Mike mentioned HCLI, which is for our, you know, mid-career health communication professionals. We have our formal courses that we teach over the you know natural semester, that 15 weeks that we're used to doing. Um, we have these you know mini video, they're not podcasts, right? If they're videos, they're, <laughs> you know more about technology than I do. No, we, we were uh, we, a, a communication firm who will remain nameless, but we were contacted to offer kind of health comm uh, training as sort of like a continuing education for their employees. Yeah. And so we stole 100% Neil deGrasse Tyson Star Talk radio model. Okay. And so we shot these video-based segments that are like a co- like a host from our center, an improv comedian co-host that we work with, mm-hmm. and then a content expert for the day as a way to sort of, you know, yeah. sneak learning into people about health yeah. communication through a really fun engaging conversation and so we're sort of the opposite of the death by powerpoint hr stuff that people are stuck doing (laughs) right um we're coming out of the same office but not that yeah Yeah. and our colleague brad love who's one of the other associate directors has been working really hard on the minor um that mike mentioned and also to kind of get us up and running in terms of more online health communication education opportunities for people who are across texas um, but also in other states some distance learning yeah Yeah, and a lot of things that you know Erin, a lot of stuff she does around kind of provider patient communication could become, you know, continue medical education. And so there's always this right. eye toward all the different sort of audiences who we think we could serve through the educational offerings we have here. Mm-hmm. Quickly, let's touch on uh, like the more the research component of it. So my personal research interest is uh, around health literacy. And so how do you build messages that work better regardless of a patient's health literacy level? Okay. And so it can be hard to get access to lower health literate patients. And so a lot of my projects are done in conjunction with, you know, clinics and private practices in town mm. 
And I generally start with like, what's a problem you are trying to solve? Mm -hmm. And so there was a big private practice in town that did lots of people sign up for their patient portal and then no one used it. They were like, well, why is this happening? And I happen to have uh, an amazing former advisee who's now at North Carolina named Allison Lazard, who's like a a visual communication, like that's her thing. Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, and then she looked at it. She's like, oh, it's because the first impressions thing is that it's horrible. Like it looks terrible and it looks like it's hard to use. (laughs) Yeah. And so we studied. Wait, hang on. The patient portal It's hard to use. I know. (laughs) That's crazy. And so, uh, so working with her in the clinic, we kind of developed this survey that was to piece, like figure out like exactly why and how that was happening. And then Mm -hmm. make recommendations back. Like, here's how you could make your portal look like first impression before you even think about if you want to use it, you kind of decided. And then it's a publishable research piece for us, but it's also practically useful to our partner. So we can go back to them the next time we want to get access to patients. So a lot of our stuff is like, we can often find ways to work Mm -hmm. our research interests into practical problems that our kind of community partners have. Mm -hmm. And and so, which is cool, because then we also get to do things that make people healthier too. Yes. Yeah, that's very cool. And part of that is being responsible scientists because people ask us all the time for our expert opinion, which we are happy to share, but sometimes they want us to do that without an evidence base. So for example, we've done quite a bit of work. I've done quite a bit of work looking at um, informed consent communication. Mm. And we were asked many years ago um, by the wonderful um, Texas Medical Disclosure Panel that you know advises the legislature and implements regulations related to patient safety in Texas, we have these terrible consent forms that haven't been updated in 25 years. How can we make this more patient friendly, right? Mm-hmm. And Mike and I looked at it and we said, yes, you are right. These are terrible. Um, But my other answer was, we'll be happy to give you guidance on this, but we need to collect data so that that guidance is, Mm -hmm. you know, grounded in something empirical and tangible. And so we've worked on that for years and um, have moved that needle um, to kind of make those forms more patient friendly. Um, So it's research for us. It's good experience for our students. um, And then again, contributes to that idea of evidence-based health com. This is great. I could probably just keep talking about this all day, but... Um, <laughs> That's what we do. Well, happy to. <laughs> yeah. Or you can text <laughs> us at 11 o'clock tonight and join our conversation. Exactly. <laughs> I was just get on a group text thread with yeah. you guys. Like, you know, what's the recommendation for folks that are trying to you know, understand this space better? Mm-hmm. So whether it's around health literacy and you know, a better way to position our patient portal, or what are some of those resources out there? What do you recommend folks... Sure. I will do a shameless plug and then give like a real answer. Um, so <laughs> I'll do a plug if you don't. All right. Yeah, no, I, because after like a decade of doing this work, mm-hmm. the working with Brad Love, who's one of our other sister directors and my former advisee, Allison, we sort of, we wanted to write a book. Um, if people out there haven't already looked at it, the National Cancer Institute has this really great tool. If you t- type NCI pink book into Google, it's this free PDF making health communication programs work. Like oh, cool. it's free. I use it for my online classes. Like it's a great free resource. It's this huge book. It's very much from kind of a like a public health perspective in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so there's moments mm-hmm. where coming at this from more of an advertising communication angle, it's like, oh, like I wouldn't put that stuff there. I'd move that a little ahead or whatever the case might be. And so we we wrote a book that we wanted to kind of basically staple to the front of the pink book to gotcha. kind of add that advertising health com perspective on top of that book. And so it's called Designing Effective Health Messages. It is recently out. I aspire not to write another book for like a decade. Um, but it was, it was really fun and a chance to write like not academic stuff. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, I mean, more broadly, I think if you're thinking like, what can you do in health calm to get better? I think it's you have to recognize sort of what your current 
um, weaknesses might be as a communication professional. And so mm-hmm. if you come up, I teach a summer health comm class and it's always half communication and half nursing students. And at the end, oh, wow. the paper's like, sort of, what did you just do for six weeks? Mm-hmm. And the nursing students universally, every summer, write, I never thought about the role of communication in my work. Mm. And I always thought that persuasion was a dirty word. Mm-hmm. Like, mm. they are trained to kind of like, I always say like, educate their patients into submission. Like, if only I told you one more time how to lose 10 pounds, like, of course you're going to do it. <laughs> right, right. And this idea from communication and advertising of like, well, here's like persuasive techniques you can use to find out what would really motivate a person and then get that message to people. And so I always tell those students, like, go read Truth, Lies, and Advertising. Go read, like... Right. advertising marketing books that can help you bring that perspective yeah. to your sort of health com work. Cause that's what I, I think a lot of people who fall into health com come up more from the public health side often. Sure. And so they're missing that. Mm-hmm. Like what can we steal from commercial advertising and apply it to health promotion? Mm-hmm. Because we don't too. see persuasion as a dirty word. We get that pushback also when we're um, advising physicians and medical educators and they say, well, we don't want to say we can't persuade patients. We can't persuade patients. That's not ethical. And then I say, well, don't you say to your patients, listen, you promised me that if you have any questions, you're going to call my office. And they say, well, yeah. So you're persuading them when you do that. And then they'll say, well, let's just call it encouragement. <laughs> you call it whatever you want. Yeah. It is persuasive communication. Yeah. It's not just, oh, I'm good at this or I'm bad at this. Communication is a learnable skill. It is teachable. It is learnable. It is testable. It is observable. Um, so reading some of those yeah. things, um, looking at other people as examples, we have the Society for Health Communication. We have academic organizations that have health communication scholars. Um, and that's one of the ways that we kind of get the word out about our work. I think the other thing I end up talking about a lot, even to my advertising students, is given anyone listening to this is listening to podcasts, like adding more podcasts that are just people telling really good stories. Mm-hmm. And so This American Life and oh, anything from Gimlet much, Media, man. or like there's all yeah. these people yeah. who tell really good stories. Yeah. And then being able to like, like you just listen to a lot of that. It's like, oh, like that's that's a thing that works and that can help people mm-hmm. do a better job in their practical work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the yeah. moth. Uh, the website, one more time. UTHealthcom with two M's dot org. I appreciate it, Aaron. Thank you, Mike. Thanks. I appreciate the time and uh, look forward to maybe having you guys back on in the future. Happy to. It's great. Thank you. Thanks awesome. so much. All right, well, that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Touchpoint. This is episode 36, and we thank you all for listening. Special thanks to our fine experts, Mike Mackert and Aaron Donovan from the Center for Health Communications over at the University of Texas. Be sure to check them out online. And then, obviously, we've got a couple things coming up. I will be uh, at the uh, Mississippi Hospital Association's uh, conference around the 1st of November. So if you're in Mississippi, be sure to check that out. Uh, We'll have a link in the show notes. And then just prior to that, Chris and I both will be in Austin, Texas. Well, I'm already in Austin, Texas, but we'll both be in Austin, Texas for the Healthcare Internet Conference, October 23rd through the 25th, where Touchpoint will be uh, recording an episode live on that Tuesday afternoon. So look for that on your schedule. If you have not registered, if you haven't registered, make your way over to hcic.net. We look forward to seeing you there. Um, I believe all of our sponsors will be there as well. So. 
stop by and say hi to them. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, it should be should be a good time. Should be a good time. So we'd love to hear from you if you're there. Track us down or send us a tweet or something like that and let us know you're going to be there. Come join us in the audience. We're going to record live in front of the studio audience. So find uh, find that on your schedule on Tuesday and come uh, come track us down. Our recommendations. What do you got? Well, Reed, I'm going to recommend where we went for our honeymoon. We went to Sedona, Arizona last week. Have you ever been to Sedona? No, I have not. Man, oh man, is it beautiful country. Uh, it's a small little town that's sort of in the middle of Arizona, about two hours away from Phoenix and about two hours away from yep. the Grand Canyon. Right in the middle, in the middle of Red Rocks country. Beautiful country, Reed. This is, you, you get there, mm-hmm. you just drive into this valley, and it looks like the old-fashioned westerns with these red mesas and rock formations. That's awesome. I mean, honestly, I just started taking photographs the minute I could. Could. Lots of great places to go for a hike. We climbed up a place called Bell Rock. We uh, we did a little hike during the day. Really easy. You can get up to moderate, even complex levels. If you really want to get adventurous, we did this too. We uh, we took something called the Pink Jeep Tour, which you get in these pink Jeeps. I guess it's like, oh. you know, and they take you off-road. They take you to these really remote areas in the middle of these uh, majestic landscapes. And then, you you know, they you're just on the back of this four-wheeling Jeep, and it's so much fun. Uh, I had a great time. Lots of great food there. Lots of great southwestern food, which I loved. I, I just really highly recommend it. Sedona, we had a great time. Anyone wants to go, just reach out to me. I can give you some recommendations for not only restaurants, but where we stayed, which is a beautiful little resort. Very cool. That is a great recommendation. I am not recommending an actual place. Uh, I am recommending an app this Ooh. week. Mine is a little bit different. And so, of course, I, I build and do you know a number of things things and you know always looking for you know kind of interesting gadgets and you know that kind of stuff and so what I'm actually recommending is an app called and I guess I'm saying this right I don't know you can correct me maybe uh, it's called Mo Mosher M-O-A-S-U-R-E does that sound right to you yeah and basically it's an app to let you measure things and so it's really great for stuff like if you want to measure the size of a room and you don't have a tape measure with you and some of those types of things basically you start the app and you move your phone around the room and it actually measures distances for you uh, has a level and you know some of those types of things that you can you know measure objects a space mm-hmm. some ice mm-hmm. height uh, actually angles mm-hmm. just kind of interesting and so yeah yeah it's a really cool little app uh, called Mosher. It's really cool. It's so fun. It's so great mm-hmm. how phones can be used, now used as devices, you know, that you can interact with your 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 place. So that's really cool. Great. Well, I'm I'm gonna go Pretty download well. that because I gotta go hang some pictures today. So that might help me. There you go. Well, that is it for us. Uh, he is Chris Boyer. I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week.